we, we never hardly ever use the word threat assessment. We look at, we use words like um, uh, concerning workplace behavior or um, problematic workplace behavior. One of the next steps people do is they'll send in a physical threat, whether that's dropping it off at the front door or sliding it off to the back loading dock, hoping somebody will pick it up or running it through the conventional mail. So what you'll see is, is the escalation of, of violence in the workplace, that is a step. The whole marginalized identities concept really depends, like I said, on the country, because depending where you are, you know, there's a different, there's a different norm. All that and much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Dr. Cornelius von Putin is the director of Dante Psychology Services, a consulting firm that specializes in preventing problematic workplace behavior through reoccurring training activities, investigations, and the implementation of sustainable structures. Dr. Cornelius van Putin, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Well, nice to be here. Thank you, Chuck. Today we're going to talk about how to translate threat assessment approaches from a U.S. style to a, to European audiences. Now, when I got this across my desk, I thought, that is very interesting. I, uh, I work with ATAP, Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, way back in the day, literally during startup, when it first got started. John Lane, LEPD, because we work with a lot of stalkers at the studios at both Fox and Disney where I worked. I know there is a difference in style, but I didn't really think it was a distinction with a difference, right? So let's talk about that. Does it come down to vocabulary and wording? Are some of the com common objections about words like threat assessment, workplace violence, are these words that don't translate the same way when we look at it from a European perspective? Well, um, Chuck, our experience is that once you phrase it in terms of threat assessment and workplace violence and you use these words, um, you put yourself immediately in the box of security business or corporate police. Um, and sometimes we have experience it makes your position much more difficult to deal with cases um, when it comes to these kinds of behaviors that are considered as low-level threats, but that have the potential to become much more serious. So sometimes is if you look at a stalking case in higher education, for instance, um, it is not directly recognized as a stalking case. So more like harassing behavior or intruding behavior or whatever you like to call it. But to understand and see the potential of an escalation into a threat and a danger that someone poses a danger to another person, then you have to find the right stakeholders to um, deal with the specific case. And their language, the way you use the language, uh, makes quite a difference how you enter um, a certain room with certain people, with certain authority, and whether they will accept the things that you uh, want to explain to them in order to accomplish the same goal, namely safety, security, and violence prevention. I think this makes a lot of sense. I used to say, and I went to these meetings all the time, right? And I was always the guy in the meeting saying, wait a minute, let's start over again here. Because you're right, using the wrong vocabulary to start to a room full of people that don't understand the vocabulary 
slows the conversation and slows your solution down, right? I used to say, listen, folks, if we're in a meeting right now doing a threat assessment about somebody that may harm us, we screwed up. It's too late. <laughs> the threat is, We should have found this guy before we had a threat assessment meeting on the pathway to violence and mitigated and slowed that down and brought the guy back into the company or the relationship so he didn't threaten us. So I, I think this is kind of a brilliant insight into getting the solutions on the table. And I, I know your article addressed a lot of the concerns in Europe, but are, the, are there concerns about this in other countries or regions? Do the same issues tend to come up as far as translating vernacular into actionable items? Mm -hmm. So what we see is that um, I, th I think Europe and the U.S. differs in, uh, in the main respects that the acceptance of threat assessment and, and those kinds of things are much more, well, um, much more common sense in the U.S. Um, and whereas at the same time, if you look at the issues that we are dealing with here, um, I don't think there is... Uh, a huge difference apart from the fact that gun ownership is of course different in, in Europe than in the US so that poses a different kind of threat but we uh, as we also addressed in uh, in our article in uh, in schools for instance the um, the incidents that have been um, increasing concerning knife possession uh, and all the incidents related to that um, that that really is a problem uh, but it's very difficult to frame it in terms of uh, security issues and these kinds of things because one is very, very concerned and very cautious not to become like a, a, a big brother kind of policing kind of thing in higher education or in other uh, aspects of education. So the, the distinction between, on the one hand, security, HR, legal, these are different silos that uh, you need to bring together in order to look at the same issues. I don't know if that answers your question a little bit. Yeah, I, I, think I, I think I understand that. Do you think that the privacy laws in Europe may contribute to a different perspective? Because the privacy laws in Europe about your personal information, you know, background checks, that's really completely different than, than over here. We're kind of moving that way in some states, but for the most part, I can get on a public record check and find everything about you in five minutes. And that does help me analyze your potential behavior, right? So I wonder if, if there's more of a slow walk and cautionary approach in Europe to addressing a threat assessment. Yeah, I, I, I think you touched upon the, the, the most delicate issue, of course, the, the privacy rights. Um, so last week we had a request from an American associate who was dealing with a case in the Netherlands, and he uh, he was asking me all kinds of questions, whether he had access to all kinds of information, which probably in some states in the U.S. I don't know exactly how much, but at least in the states he was working in, it was much more easier, for instance, to get uh, information about someone's psychiatric or psychological condition. Now, this is here in Europe. This is really impossible to get. Um, even if you have a background check, it's very, very superficial in the sense that it only um, the Department of Justice gives you these uh, statements 
about behavior, which only says whether you have a criminal record or not. And that's, that's normally uh, the most you can get. But um, going back to your, to, to your question is that you need, for instance, in, in larger organizations or in, and I give the higher education as a good example, because we have quite some experiences with that, is that you can set up something like a team that will collect and store information in a in in a legal way, in the sense that you just register it um, on the basis of the rules that uh, are being prescribed, and then you have something like um, how do you call it? I think a uh, collective memory, or when it comes to cases uh, that you can use. Uh, whenever there is an incident, so you your your way of acting becomes much more easier when you have this kind of team and you can regulate that. But you have to uh, have a good policies how to do that, how to store it, and then the acceptance will be much better. But I, it's threat assessment in that sense is is a little bit more difficult than in the U.S. So give me some examples of how we might change the conversation, change the vernacular to get a buy-in from the stakeholders in a threat assessment team. You pointed out earlier, you know, very precisely that you might have a, a HR sitting at the table, facilities, security. Uh, it could be the executive suite, all kinds of people looking at a threat assessment that need to give their opinion and get a consensus here we might call it a threat assessment roundtable. What might we call it in Europe, and and how might we get people to buy into that? Uh, we we never, hardly ever use the word threat assessment. We look at we use words like um, uh, concerning workplace behavior or um, problematic workplace behavior, and we 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 also had an approach that we use in courses. Uh, when we uh, train officials and and um, all kinds of people from HR and legal that are in in a uh, in a team, a social safety team or uh, whatever you like to call it, but exactly is, we call it a structured approach to concerning workplace um, incidents, and that is a much more friendly approach to exactly the same kind of principles that have been laid down in threat assessment. So we, we use the same principles, we use the same methodology. The only difference is that we give it a different name. And that's exactly why I gave the example. Uh, it, it's, it's more like a funny example uh, about a Belgian restaurateur who once had on his menu uh, a certain item and it was called pony. So you could order the meat of the pony. And it, it, it didn't sell very well until a friend of him said to him, well, why don't you change the name of Pony into Grassbelly? Because of the fact that these horses are usually small and their belly touches the grass. And then, um, well, what they saw is that customers started to appreciate it much more, but they were eating the same meat. The only difference is the name. So it gives you, perception defines a lot. Uh, and if you are able to frame it in the right way, then people will, you have, will have much more acceptance to that. You know, I think you're right on that. So there's, 
there's different schools of threat assessment over here in the U.S. There's, you know, the pathway to violence is what we're all trying to assess. And at the beginning of the pathway, yes. it is behavior. It is low-level, oh, what would be the right word? Uh, inappropriate behavior could be something like comments at work, one employee to another. I had a case where uh, a secretary was shooting spitballs at her boss as he walked in. And we thought, well, that's weird. Turns out she was having an affair with him. And in the end, she almost tried to attack him, right? So we saw that early on. So when you define it as, uh, you know, inappropriate or, or concerning workplace behavior, everybody knows what that is. Everybody understands that. Everybody's seen that. And actually, I think when you do it that way, you're actually getting ahead of the issue because you're not con convening a roundtable for a guy coming to your office with a gun, you're con which is too late, by the way. You're convening a roundtable for the secretary shooting spitwads before she gets her gun and comes there, way before. I, I think this is really a, a brilliant, uh, subtle approach. Yeah, and I think we what we saw is that, that we had much more acceptance, but also the fact that uh, we were able to bring those different stakeholders together. Because if you have an employee, there is an HR side connected to it. There's a legal side connected to it. There is a, a security uh, side connected to it. But um, um, so, for instance, that I remember a legal specialist of HR and higher education who refused to talk about a case of an employee with, uh, with, with another uh, person from security. So, uh, and and she didn't acknowledge him as a suitable and equal sparring partner, or as a person she could relate to. So, and I asked her why, and she said, "Well, um, that that guy is responsible for the risk, like the locks on the doors and the access to the premises, but he's not responsible for the risk of the behavior of the employee." Now, I disagreed on that, and we we had a good discussion on that. So, and that it started her perspective on the fact that those low level kind of behaviors, you need to understand them. It doesn't necessarily need to escalate into violence, but if you act at an early stage and you understand and you make a good risk assessment and you have all the information of all the parties involved, then you can uh, build a case, monitor that case, and when it changes, when something happens, you can act uh, very quick, very, uh, very effective without having to wait to uh, having this escalate into a case of violence. So, and that, uh, I think that gives peace of mind to, to many people in your organization, but also in the end, it will um, lead to a better safety and a better sense of safety uh, from employees in the organization. Yeah, I, I agree. It's always easier to write a memo, a corrective memo about small behavior than it is to build a giant legal case for somebody that's that right. you fired that's now violent. It's a whole different way to look at it. And I always believe that small incremental disciplinary actions, right? Hey, don't shoot spitwads at your boss anymore, okay? We're going to have to fire you. I think that corrects people. 99% of the time, people come back to normal behavior because a lot of times those are calls for attention, right? They want to, they want to be looked at or acknowledged as an employee. Do you guys find that, uh, that over there, if you get into the correction phase, does this alter uh, 
your perceptions on employee behavior. In other words, if you find that small, small behavior that's not appropriate, do the people tend to bind to that more quickly and then try to correct that? Well, well, that's interesting because one of the things that we uh, introduced a couple of years ago is to to give those trainings and awareness uh, trainings that were exactly aimed at preventive measures. So instead of waiting to uh, have a case that escalated and led to security issues, but also to all kinds of legal issues, um, we said, well, let's start at the beginning and see make people more aware of the fact that certain behavior is inappropriate and in potential problematic, uh, leading maybe perhaps to uh, a serious escalation. Um, and that is helpful because uh, once people are more aware of um, what kind of behavior is problematic, and once they are trained and understand much better how to act when a certain situation occurs because in um, in many cases people are just trying to ignore avoid or minimize the problem because of the fact they don't know how to deal with it at the moment itself and once you train that and once you make them more aware you uh, are i think you are preventing a lot of problems that uh, could occur at a later stage during well during the road because of the fact that it is ignored or neglected at an early stage so the training the training programs uh, for us are, are really important I, I think you're on to something here in the united states we start at the highest level in other words we're saying this is a threat we have to act because it, we we start at the high level and then we try to back go backwards and in the U.S., you start in Europe. You start at the lower level, and you you escalate. And somewhere in the middle is going to be the solution for this. So I really appreciate your input on that. And thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thank you. It's great, great to be here, Mr. Will Plummer, Ray Secure. Welcome back, to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, sir. It's great to be here. Now today we're going to talk about threat assessments, workplace violence prevention, travel security, employee safety, all relating to mail. Security. And you and I have talked in the past, and i, I got to say, I think people miss this. How have mail-based threats changed, and, and how have they impacted workplace violence? Yeah, it's interesting, Chuck. I mean, if you if you think about it, uh, everybody's gone into a mailroom or go to the post office, see that post 84 from the USPS that says, you know, it's going to be off-weight, it's going to have oily stains, uh, it's going to have misspellings on it. And that's not the way threats look like nowadays. Uh, Google doesn't let you misspell things, so CEOs' names are usually accurate. Um, where some of those other indicators would have been things from the mid 80s to, to mid early 90s, where somebody had to go and buy homemade explosives, well, or make homemade explosives, have the, the dark. Um, you can order just about anything you want from China. So instead of having to have a big lab set up, you can do it in your in your own basement. And unfortunately, for the security industry, threats have gotten very small. So you don't have to think about somebody putting a big radio in. That's it, not what it's going to be. It's going to be cell phone that could do any task that you want it to do, whether it's count, uh, cause something to function, or just gather information. Now, tell me how mail threat assessment differs from other security assessments and how those organizations conducted them. It's, it's just a little different perspective. Is that it? 
Yeah, it's kind of a, it's, it's different a little bit. So if you look at like a mail security assessment, a lot of it's logistics. You have to look at your footprint when the human being's not involved. So where those carts go, what do they stop next to? What, what do you allow to come in without having somebody be screened? If you know the, the drivers, you know, by the first name, that's great. But after six or seven, you know, people that have turned over, you, it's hard to pay attention to exactly um, what's coming in and what's going out. Now, when you look at like a conventional risk assessment, everybody hopefully is involved. You've got all your players who play out acting for all other players. Well, logistics and the people that run it are the player in the middle for a lot of this. So threat door and then your own people will just carry them through the facility. So if I'm going to craft a threat assessment, tell me the most critical elements, considerations, factors I should I should look for. I get the access control part. I get the greasy, you know, address and, and packages. That's old school stuff. Yeah, yeah. Give me some, some new things to think about now, new elements. So honestly, this is really going to sound strange, but go look at who your subordinate organizations are and where responsibilities lie in the security functions. Uh, I say that because it's the most common problem that we see when we talk to larger companies is they will have a third party in the house working. And if you look at their contract and what it says that they will and won't do, oftentimes the security efforts aren't covered under that. So you'll have a security entity that's attended and designed and trained to own that function of security, but they don't really have oversight over that third party company that's the one that's providing that security, the actual screening function. So when you get down, there's a gap. They don't have oversight doing the task and the people who are responsible for the task don't have the ability to influence or make change on those doing it. That's the most common problem we see. Tie this to threat assessment for me, workplace violence prevention. You know, we hear a lot about cyberbullying. Everything is an email now. Everything's a meme. You get attacked. It's all digital, right? Our mail is mostly digital in a lot of ways. So how do we tie this back to the mail and, and the mail threat assessment and workplace violence? So workplace violence, if you think about mail, think about like escalation violence. Uh, I can send a tweet to your company and nobody responds because it's just a tweet. I can send an email. It hits that firewall, that cyber that that everybody has got 74 layers of and they're, they're all solid for. One of the next steps people do is they'll send in a physical threat, whether that's dropping it off at the front door or sliding it off to the back loading dock, hoping somebody will pick it up or running it through the conventional mail. So what you'll see is, is the escalation of, of violence in the workplace. That is a step. And it's something that if you, through your threat assessment, put into your metrics and say, okay, we've got 24 people on this list downstairs that say we can't accept something from them because they've done something in the past. Uh, What are we doing to actually pay attention to them? Because they obviously have something against the organization or somebody in it. And as you work your way through your threat assessment, if you keep looking back and going, where else can I tie a physical threat that could cross over into cyber even, where somebody sends in a listening device or somebody sends in something that you'll need a TSCM sweep to find, um, it's it's applicable. Um, firewalls are great. The phishing events happen all the time, but most of those things are employee started when they click on links they're not supposed to. Uh, this is something where the employee is doing exactly what they're told to. They're carrying something from point A to point B. Yeah, you know, this is an excellent point. If you, if you tie this back to uh, the old fashioned assessment for stocking, which I was involved in 20 years mm-hmm. ago when it first started, Less than 1% right. of all stalkers actually show up in person, by the way, right? It's very rare that they show up in person. Right. So if we tie this back to what you're saying, it's now, fast forward 20 years, it's now a highly significant event if somebody crosses backwards 
from cyber back into the physical world with mail. I think that's highly significant. That puts it at the yes. higher threat level, I think. I thoroughly agree. And if you look at look at events that happen I mean, every day, I mean, we track these things here, of course, but um, all the high profile ones that come in, they are tied to other events, whether that's a government leader or a judge that's currently doing all the federal cases that are so high profile, or even Supreme Court justices uh, with the decision they, they changed last year or earlier this year. Um, all those events were predicated by uh, electronic message, electronic meaning, or electronic message or emails, and they were followed up with a physical threat that was sent to their home. Let's talk about our final topic. What actions should organizations take to help protect the business, employees, and operations from insider attacks using mail? That Insider attacks to me are always the most significant. There's a couple things you can do, um, and almost all of them are inexpensive. So you, you talk to folks, and they, they come up with these huge elaborate solutions that cost a lot of money, and they cost a lot of time. Um, one of them is start overtly letting people know that you're screening mail. Uh, it's a great deterrent. You let people know that you have processes in place and they hopefully will decide not to not to test them. Uh, one thing that if your security folks are paying attention to is when all of a sudden several people who never hang out in the mailroom are down in the mailroom looking at what you're doing in your screening processes, uh, that might be something to take a look at internally if you're trying to pay attention to it. Uh, the other one is setting up trackers. I know companies have them all the time. But trackers are generally used for logistical functions. If you want to tie them into the security apparatus, it's more long lines of, all right, let's set up, let's set a pattern. Who is normally sending interoffice mail from this facility to this facility? Who is normally um, doing whatever function inside the, the, the mailroom? And when those start deviating enough, that's a change in pattern. And it's something to take a look at. Um, we've done this with a couple companies and I can tell you that the feedback we've gotten so far is uh, we found some drugs where people can use an interoffice mail to ship drugs from one state to the next. And just by looking at patterns, they figured out, hey, this person is doing something every third week of the month and it's not tied to business. So what is it? So that that's one way of doing it. The other thing that you could do besides adding trackers and, and paying attention to patterns of life is, is setting and, and starting an overt program is setting a, a set of standards on what you allow to happen. Uh, I've been in facilities that you they have a, a internal eBay, if you want to call it that. But the things like they'll be moving around mufflers where one employee will have bought it and they're doing this great process to take care of the employees and make sure they're good. Take a look at the things you allow to happen to keep your employees happy. Uh, Amazon's a great thing because it goes to the porch. People will steal it. So send them to the office. That's a fairly safe thing to do, except it overwhelms the mailroom. If you're doing other things inside your organization, take a look at those because they'll often be exploited. Will Plummer, Ray Secure, always a pleasure to speak with you, my friend. Good insight in our digital age. Let's not forget about the most important factor, the physical world. And mail is still physical, my friends. We gotta, we gotta deal with that. Good luck to you and uh, see you at the next trade show. Thank you, Chuck. See you there. Mackenzie Grahick is a security manager specializing in threat analysis and contingency planning for clients in the America's office of International SOS, the world's leading health and security risk services company with 1,000 locations in 90 countries. Mackenzie Grahick, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Today's topic is LGBTQ plus travel safety and marginalized communities. What an interesting topic. This is a, out of 3,000 shows, I've not done one of these interviews. So I'm really excited to talk about this. This is going to be really interesting. You work for International SOS, 
I interviewed them maybe nine years ago, one of my very first shows. What an operation. Give us a little overview of what International SOS does, because we're going to put your street creds in context with this. Excellent. Yeah, it is quite an operation. Um, so I'm a security manager in the America's office at International SOS. Um, we are a leading medical and security assistance company. Uh, we have a global footprint with over 1,000 locations in 90 countries. Um, so as I said, I am based in the Americas region in the U.S. Um, so I personally specialize in threat analysis, contingency planning, contingency planning for our clients in the Americas region. And uh, beyond that, I'm the subject matter expert regarding LGBTQ plus and minority travel. And I lead content and special projects related to marginalized communities. Let's start by defining that. Uh, I think we all understand LGBTQ plus, but let's define a, a marginalized community. Yeah, absolutely. So the term really can take on a different meaning depending on where you are or what your physical profile is. Um, so given the fact that I am currently based in the U.S., I will just use that you know, as, as our example. Um, so typically a marginalized community would be a community that does not have the support of kind of the grander, grander system. Um, so for example, in some contexts, the LGBTQ plus community can be considered marginalized given that the fact that they don't have the same um, legal or social protections as, um, as other communities. That makes sense. And, then, and in some cases in different parts of the world, that definition I assume can change. Absolutely. So in some locations that could be pertaining to women um, or based on your skin color or religious identity or ethnicity or cultural identi identities. So let's walk, walk us through how you're going to do an analysis on a potential threat for the marginalized community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it all comes down to the traveler profile and the destination of their travel. Um, so for example, how many languages does this person speak? Has this person traveled before? Does this person look like the people in the country that they are traveling to? Does this person interact with people the same? Um, it, do they have the similar gender identity as their passport presents? You know, there are tons of, of facets to consider here. Um, the first one, like I mentioned, is the profile and their comfort levels. So, you know, you want to take this physical profile and then line that up with the travel destination. So let's say we have a gay white man traveling to Nigeria, okay? So we have the fact that this their skin color may not look the same as all those in Nigeria. And we have the fact that Nigeria is what I would call a hostile environment for the LGBTQ plus community. So then we have to consider, you know, where in Nigeria is this traveler going? Has this traveler been there? Does this traveler speak the local language? All of these facets of the traveler profile will, um, will give us a good idea of what kind of risk mitigation strategies we need to, to employ for this traveler. Um, beyond that, it is really important when doing this kind of pre-travel research to look into not only the country's laws and social attitudes, but the more nuanced kind of regional or state or province-based and even city or neighborhood-based. Um, you know, as most people are well aware, there are wildly different social attitudes in major urban centers than in more kind of rural areas. So all of those things are really important to consider prior to, to sending someone on, um, on international or even domestic travel. Well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, local. I, I've always had this philosophy. I may have created this myself. I'm not sure, but people told me I have. I say this, all security is local. All security is personal. All security is now, right? In other words, 
Absolutely. The FBI is not protecting you and me in our house. Everybody, Some people think that, but that's not what's going on. You and I have to take responsibility for our own individual security. So when we look at it that way, uh, your profiling is interesting because it could also apply to anybody else. It's I assume it's kind of a similar profile you build on any sort of person, marginalized or not, but it's about context, isn't it? So let's talk about context. You mentioned Absolutely. Nigeria is not, not a friendly place, but you might have that same profile uh, and our travelers going to Palm Springs, welcome with open arms, right? Because it has a, a very large gay community and, and it's very accepted. Where do you where do you draw the line on the profile to advise your client? You know, I mean, you advise the client of the risk. I get that part. But sometimes people just have to travel. Is, is there something that would just absolutely say, you know what? We, we just don't advise that. Or does the profile and talking with the client help them work around the problems and be able to travel? Yes. So the ISOS standpoint is that we are travel enablers, you know, so I would absolutely want everyone to be aware of the risks that are in each location. Um, But at the end of the day, the vast majority of risk can be mitigated. Um, So there are certain things like only disclose your identity to trusted contacts in certain locations, Um, you know, travel with partners. Um, There are so, so many things that are you know, seemingly very simple, that can make a huge, huge difference. Um, Just letting the traveler know, you know, this is a safer area, this is a more, a less safe area. Um, And so personally, I don't, I will rarely advise someone not to go somewhere due to a a specific identity. Um, Typically, I would just advise, you know, if the, a certain identity is a concern, then I would advise extra risk mitigation strategies, for example, Rather than walking alone in the street, if you have, you know, what I would call a high profile, I would advise secure ground transportation. Um, you know, simple things that mitigate the risk for all travelers are also absolutely risk mitigation strategies for travelers of, you know, certain higher profiles such as um, LGBTQ+. Um, so, you know, don't stay out at night. Don't walk alone. Have a plan in place should something happen. Know who to reach out to know where to go, et cetera. Um, so I am a strong, strong um, advocate of travel enabling and just, you know, doing the, ad, the, the sufficient research ahead of, ahead of that trip. Yeah, I, I like that term, uh, enabler, because listen, the show must go on. We, we got we to live life. We got to move exactly. forward. We can't be interrupted by a <laughs> bunch of uh, problems like that. It totally makes sense. Now, exactly. <laughs> LGBTQ plus uh, for my example, in Palm Springs, would not be necessarily a minority, right? Uh, and it'd be an accepting community. I go there all the time. I just love that place. It's fantastic. But let's talk about the word minority as it pertains to marginalized communities. That could have a few different definitions. So help me help me focus on that. What would that mean? Sure. So I think I could best do that by just giving you an example of a project that I recently worked on. Um, so I had a company reach out and they were looking for more information on how to better support their domestic employees within the United States that have to travel to rural areas. Um, and they had mentioned that they have a lot of staff um, that are that identify as LGBTQ uh, plus. They have a lot of Asian staff and they have a lot of um, Black staff. They, again, reached out to me and just essentially they found that they had a gap in their training. They didn't feel that they were doing all that they could to make sure that all of their employees, regardless of their identity, were feeling safe during their domestic trips. In this case, they were 
talking about more of a race ethnicity um, marginalized identity. The LGBTQ stuff was less so, they had that a little bit more figured out. Um, but they kind of came to me to ask about what they could do to better better assist those that, for example, may be at higher risk for hate crimes in the United States. And the answer to that is, is doing the, your due diligence with, again, with the research, you know, making sure that these travelers know where they're going, again, have local sources um, or contacts in case anything goes wrong. And they also know of any upcoming events. So, you know, again, based in the U.S., we do have the U.S. midterms coming up. So certain locations are you know, political battlegrounds, and because of that, there are heightened political tensions. Um, and this can have an impact on people of certain identities. So from a company or an organization perspective, it's really just making sure that they are aware of what's going on, they're comfortable, making sure they know what to do in case of an emergency, and knowing that their company will really support them is huge. Um, so maybe that looks like some type of debriefing after the travel to, you know, ensure that they were adequately uh, informed of any trouble spots or any ongoing issues. Um, you know, really ensure that they felt adequately supported during the travel before and after the travel. The whole marginalized identities concept really depends, like I said, on the country, because depending where you are, you know, there's a different, there's a different norm. Well, exactly. And I remember uh, my days at Disney, I, I did something similar to what you do, not as well, I'll give you that, but I was the guy that had to do it, so I had to learn on the fly. And uh, just with some simple research one day, I learned that there was a arrest warrant out for our top executive in the company, in a country that I had no idea wanted him arrested. And it was for some kind of, I don't know, environmental crime or something like that. And, you know, it turns out he was going to travel there. And we said, no, you better not. You might get arrested, right? You just don't know what's going on in the world oh, these wow. days. It's crazy out mm -hmm. there. And you're in so many countries, I could see. It is. A, yeah, how you get a feel on this. Now, would you say that there are different regions of the world that uh, that become more problematic? I mean, I know you want to encourage travel, but, you know, we hear some pretty pretty horrific stories sometimes in different areas that have certain laws about things that would never happen here, but sometimes you got to do business there. How do you advise your clients on that? Is it If it's political, that worries me a little more than the average crime on the street. Personally, I, maybe I'm wrong on that. No, I totally understand what you're saying. I, you know, for lack of sounding like a, a broken record, preparation. <laughs> um, so, you know, say the traveler profile of concern is um, being a woman and they're going to a country that has potentially firm rules or regulations that women have to follow in order to walk outside or to go to work. So I would not say, since you're a woman, you can't go to this place. You know, again, I am a travel enabler, but I, what I would say is, look, X, Y, and Z regula regulations are in place in this country. And as a traveler to this country, you need to respect those laws or regulations or, you know, social norms to be safe. You know, this, and then, you know, and then it's up to the traveler. Am I willing to, to employ those risk mitigation strategies or am I not? And if they're not, then maybe this travel or this trip isn't the best idea. But I believe that typically you can just base with, you know, knowledge is power. You know, you can give enough for somebody enough information to have them be able to sufficiently mitigate that risk. Excellent, excellent stuff, my friend. Ms. McKenzie with SOS International talking about marginalized travelers, LGBTQ+, and others. Something 
I've never discussed, and I'm sort of glad we got to do this conversation. So good luck to you, and uh, maybe we'll see you at one of the trade shows. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to talking to you again soon.